Because first of all, you can't do anything about it. And secondly, he tells you that you are to thank the Lord in all things. Be thankful to the Lord in all things. For example, some people say, I just can't stand my parents. Well, you're not going to get another pair of them. And if you have the fear of the Lord in your heart, you're going to say, I will honor my father and my mother. Now, you see, if we don't want to revere God's unchangeable, non-optional laws, then we're going to be chasing continuously through our life against something that's absolutely unchangeable, and we become miserable, and we do not change God's laws. Someone says, you know, when you fall on God's laws, you never break his laws, his laws break you. You and I are broken when we break God's command, when we violate God's commandments. And when God says we're to honor our father and our mother, what option do you have? The only other thing you can do is to have an attitude of disrespect for them, but that's sowing a seed that someday will come back and chickens come home to roost. I can tell you a family after family where the children have been obnoxious to the parents, only to see those children grow up and see their children obnoxious toward them. So young people, listen to me, you boys and girls. However you treat your parents now, mark it down, that's the way your children are going to treat you in the days ahead. So if you like that kind of treatment, you think it's great, you sow that seed and it'll come back to you. So you should honor your father and your mother so that your days may be long upon the earth and God can bless you when you become parents later on because you'll learn how to teach your children to walk according to God's word. You can't change it, they'll always be your parents. The second thing is, my time in history. Ever had somebody say, I just think I was born out of time? No, you weren't. God has you here at this specific time. The only thing is, you must not rebel against God's timing because God's timing is perfect. How many of you know that we, many times as parents, have thought that our children came just at the wrong time? When the wife came to you and said, Honey, I believe I'm pregnant. We're going to have a child. Oh, no, this is the wrong time. Only look back and you say, You know, it was God's perfect time. And whenever these things happen, you have to say, Lord, I thank you that I am trying to walk day by day in your presence. I'm trying to be obedient to your word. I'm trying to honor you. And I thank you because you said in your word that children are a gift from the Lord. Now, if you have children that you think of as anything but a gift, don't blame God. Somewhere along the line, you're not fulfilling biblical principles consistently to where they will rise up to call you blessed. Let me say it again. The smaller the sapling, the easier to form its branches. Some of you know that there's a couple of old pear trees sticking out in front of my house, right in front of the dining room. One close to the house, one out a little further. Both of them look like sick specimens of trees. When I first got that tree, they said, what you need to do is take some boards and sticks and, and prop the branches out so that they'll spread out. Well, First of all, I really didn't want the pear trees, I, I didn't want the peach trees, I didn't want the apple trees, I didn't want the plum trees, because everything I planted, I had to take care of. But I got them, and I put them in the ground, and I thought, that's the day I'm going to sit out here and try to shape some boards to stick between these branches and stick them out. And you know, after the things have been sitting there for about nine years, I think, those are ugly trees. I went over there the other day and went like this to try to, uh, no way, if I try to bend those branches out now, they'd probably break off. There's a biblical principle there. God has brought you into this time for a specific reason. God's bringing your children into being in this time for a specific reason. But if you're going to cause them to rise up and call you blessed, you've got to begin to shake the branches when they're just little saplings. Not when they get stronger. And you know when they start getting stronger, you can feel the resistance. And that's the time to deal with that. The third thing, my race. 
I'm not talking about what you run. I'm talking about the color of your skin, the origin of your family. Many people say, I just wish that uh, I were this course in the United States. There are many people who think that because we are Caucasian that we are superior. We have had a better background, a better opportunity. But let me tell you something. There is not one person on the face of the earth who loves God that is lesser or greater than another one that loves God. The ground at the foot of the cross is absolutely level. Let me say that again, that I might uproot any racial prejudice in a Christian. There are no grounds in the word of God for. I've had people say to me, well, you know that when Moses married a black woman, he got into all kinds of trouble with his family. And I say, yes, but do you know what God did to those who came against him? Miriam got leprosy. They were judged. Man looks on the outward appearance. Well, I'm a little lighter than you, so I must be better than you. Or in other nations, I'm a little darker than you, so I must be... I am a Muslim, so I'm better than you. I am Oriental, so I'm... No, 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 no. Man looks on the outward appearance. Where does God look? How many of you know that there's no difference on the heart? Whatever our race, we thank the Lord for it. Say, Lord, wherever you want me in this, where I am right now, I want to serve you. You know, there have been some who have been overseas that accepted the Lord, and they brought them here to the United States to go to school. When they got here, they tried to stay here after they got here and saw how wonderful our nation was and didn't want to go back. Well, you see, they didn't have the burden for lost souls like they needed to be able to go back and minister to their own people. Now many of the denominations have found out they leave the schools right in their own nation and they train them there so they can't come here and get a taste of what we've got. But many of them say, oh, I just wish I could be in America. Well, you can't. You're content right where you are. Thirdly, my national heritage. Some people in the world say, I'd give anything to be in America. Well, if they're a Christian, wherever they are, and honor God. God's going to honor them for that. That's unchangeable. Wherever you were born, that's what you are. The fifth one, my gender. You know, I've actually had young people say to me in the past, I've had girls say to me, I wish I had been born a boy. Of course, in the nation of Israel, that was always the way it was. The young men would get up every day and go, Sammy, when they come out of the room, they say, I thank God that I'm not a woman. And then there are others that, fellows that, I guess it'd be more exciting to be a girl. Number one, it's unchangeable. And I find that many times when, when we desire to be the other gender, we open ourselves up to spiritual problems. There are, there are girls who receive and accept a masculine spirit because they are dissatisfied with the fact that they are a girl. And you have to be very, very careful. And thank God, I thank God that he made me a, a man. I thank God he made me a woman. Because he has a specific ministry for me just the way I am. I can't change it, so I thank God for that. Sixth, my... My birth order. When I was born, my daddy asked somebody if there were any tail lights on me, and they said, why? They said, that's the caboose. I was the eighth of eight children. And there's some people that say, well, my older sister or my older brother gets all the, all the breaks. He gets to do anything he wants to. And I've heard older children say, well, boy, when I was coming up, I got beaten half to death for everything I did. But my younger brothers and sisters, they're just getting away with murder, you know. And they resent each other. You ought to thank God because, and I can't get into it now, but you know there are definite motivational traits. Whether you're first, second, third, fourth, fifth child, whatever you are, if you're the first boy, or you may be the fifth child, but if you're the first boy, you'll have the first child tendencies. I'm trying to remember, the first born has an allegiance or a willingness to, to serve. 
And it's amazing in some of the different trades or some of the different fields of service uh, where in many cases it'll be most of them firstborn or first of that gender being born. The middle one is always the uh, aggressive one, the one that's always trying to get equal time. I can't get into all that, but just thank the Lord for your birth order. How many firsts do we have here tonight? Isn't that interesting? How many seconds? Five. Yes, but you see, you're a first of your gender, and Jeff's the first of his gender. Lee, you're the first of your gender, so you'd have the same traits as the firstborn. That's a study in itself. Maybe we'll be able to give that sometime. The next thing, I'll watch it, young people. Maybe I shouldn't say young people. Adults, too. Thank the Lord for your brothers and sisters. You can't change it. I know that there was a time when my one sister, I, I should say I have four half-sisters and a half-brother and two sisters. I had one sister that went to high school and denied she knew me. I don't know him. Don't even know him. And she would ignore me like I didn't exist. A real temper. But she would literally ignore me. And I, I can't believe this. And it took years. And it wasn't until we moved down here and she came down with her children and went to Disney World. And I found out she was down here that I, I took my car down to her. I said, There's no sense in you leasing your car here. Take my car and I'll just leave. Oh, no, no, no. And I said, No, just that's fine. Don't worry about it. And she didn't know what to do. And so when she and the family came to the house, we were very friendly with her, and since then it's opened the door, and I were able to call each other and write to each other and keep in contact. But I mean, that took close to 40 years, 30 some years, 35 years before we could begin to relate again as sisters and brothers. It's so tragic that you go through life with that. I mean, life is too short. And you ought to thank God for your brothers and sisters and pray that every one of them will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ so that you can fellowship together and spend eternity together. The next thing. How can I thank God for my bald head or my big nose or my floppy ears or whatever else it is where you might happen to carry the extra luggage that you carry on you like I do in certain spots? How can I love you? A lot of it's unchangeable, your physical features. Oh, I know, you can go get a nose job, but you know what I found out? Most people go get a facial or get a nose job or a chin job or all these things. The rest of their life, they're always aware, you know, I, I wonder if they would really like me as much if I, they really knew what I really looked like before. They carry that around in them because there's a deep insecurity that I had to have something changed in order to get people to like me. You see, the very motivation of it is wrong. I mean, if you don't think people can like you, look at Jimmy Durante. You remember him, any of you? I mean, he had a proboscis, is that what they call proboscis or whatever sticking out there? But everybody loved Jimmy Durante. He could laugh at his own weakness. You know, I, I found a time, there came a time when I had to start in kidding. I said, you know, I'm the only person, if you tell me to follow my nose, I get dizzy. If I wiggle my nose, I can clean my left ear, you know, because I, I, I noticed my ear, with my nose was, was twisted. And so I had to get to a place where I could make light of it and not worry about it. The most important thing is not what I look like to mankind, it's what I look like to God. How many of you know, there are people that you know that love the Lord that have some Great abnormalities as far as not being the, what we would call the ideal person. But you come to a place where you don't even pay any attention to what they, what's different about them. You just love them because of who they are. And if we can learn that God made me the way I am, I thank him for my physical features. I thank him that he never makes a mistake. And that I can love him and he doesn't love me any less for the way I look. And if he wants me to have someone to live with the rest of my life that will love me, they may have some abnormalities too. Reminds me of the guy that 
preacher that said he was looking for the perfect church. And when he finally found it, they wouldn't let him join. People are so concerned about everybody being perfect. Anybody you know yet that you found is perfect? You know what's really interesting to me? You can go to beauty queens and go to Mr. America's, guys that are working out all the time are supposed to have beef as you can say, uh, what, is there anything like yourself you don't like? Oh, yeah. And they'll begin to reel off a whole bunch of things that they don't like about themselves. And many other people think, if I could just look like, oh, I'd just give anything to look like that. No, you wouldn't. If you look like that, you'd still have problems thinking that, well, this should be different, a little bit different, a little bit more, a little bit less, you know. We need to come to a place where we can be content in the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for just what I am. And in saying that, I'm not saying we're supposed to go around allowing ourselves to become just sloppy. We should always look neat, do the very best we can to keep ourselves for health sake, but we shouldn't allow that to defeat us. Our physical features. Next, my mental abilities and limitations. I used to get so frustrated when I was in school. I said, dear God, why did you call me in the ministry? I mean, look at this guy over here. He goes into the Greek class. I will be trying to dissect one verse for the whole class, and he finishes a chapter and a half. Why can't I have that ability, Lord? Then I realized later on that he sang like a bullfrog. Later on, I found out he had a terrible time trying to preach. He could not get up in front of people. He loved to think. I had limitations. He had limitations. I had abilities. He had abilities. And I had some people say, oh, I just wish I had all these talents like brother such and such has or sister such and such has. Well, what are you doing with the talents you've got? If I could just be like them. No, no, no. What are you doing with the, the abilities God's given you? Can you thank the Lord for your abilities and your limitations? Don't just keep saying, oh, God, you've been unfair to me. You didn't give me this talent and that talent, this ability and this gift. Just take the ones that you've got that he's given you and develop them for the glory of God. I took six piano lessons and I realized God didn't call me to be a pianist. I married one. That was the best way in the world. And God called her to be a pianist. But in the meantime, you have to take the abilities you've got and go with them. And thank the Lord for them. Some people say, well, I wish I could sing. And I say, well, I wish I could do what you can do. But I thank God for the abilities he's given me. I thank that you should thank God for the abilities he's given you. Well, I wanted to be an all-A student. Well, if everyone were all-A students, it'd be kind of boring, wouldn't it? Let me just tell you something, young people. Get this down pat now. 20 years after you're out of school, nobody will ask you what your grades were in high school. Hear me? Well, what, what standards did you have in class? I've known of guys that graduated from school, high school and college with me, that are nothing today, doing nothing. And they've got all A's doing nothing. And others that barely made it, they are wealthy businessmen. It isn't whether you can answer all the questions the teachers have for you. Do the very best you can and get everything in you possibly can and take it and use it. Don't feel like, well, God, you just really didn't bless because I'm not all A student. He has made you to be what you are. Do with it what you can and God will honor you for it. Last one. Some of these beauty cream companies are going to throw a fit at me. Some of these hair growing companies are going to throw a fit at me. But you know, Christians need to become able to grow gracefully. Now, I didn't say become dowdy. But when people on television say those ugly aging spots, ugly, I don't 
think we look that bad. I've got them. I'm supposed to run out and get some cream and rub it on there for 20 or 30 some days and finally they'll disappear, but if I quit doing it, they'll come back again. Well, then they, they must be supposed to be there. If you'll rub this stuff on your skin, it'll tighten you up and draw you over and you'll look 50. Garbage. Let me tell you something. The death of every generation is universal. I mean, it's total. The book of Ecclesiastes says there's a time to be born and a time to die, but God says live that life to the fullest and don't sit around and worry whether you've got another wrinkle the next morning or more gray hair or less hair. God has given to us, and that's why David said, Lord, help me to number my days, to recognize that my days are numbered. The word of God says that 70 years is normal. And sometimes by sheer strength, we get to be 80, and now it's 90, and once in a while you'll hear somebody 100, 105, 110. I think I told you what my sister just wrote to me in the card. She said, here, you're talking about you being middle-aged, but how many people do you know that are 106? I needed that. But you see, it's an unchangeable thing. I could sit around forever and say, well, why did Beverly have to go to the Lord? Beverly went to be with the Lord, evidently, because the Lord said, Beverly, come on home. Well, somebody said, does she have to get sick to do that? Well, most people do before they die. I mean, a lot of people die, I mean, they just, just wear out. But the majority of people that die today, usually something causes that death to happen. If it isn't sickness, it's an automobile accident, or it's a drowning, or something like that. You see, it isn't really important how we die, because absence from the body will be present with the Lord. We all, when we're dead, we're dead. There's a time to be born, a time to die. And we should live in such a way that at any moment, if the Lord calls us, we can say, thank you, Lord. What did Jesus say? He said, I've finished the work that you've given me to do. Paul said, I have finished the course. I have run the race. I have finished the course. There is therefore laid up for me a crown. It's the Lord's righteous judges prepared for me. Not just for me, but for all of them that love his appearance. James says that this life is like a vapor that appears for a moment and vanishes away. And people are doing everything they can to keep from looking old and getting old. I had the funniest, sweetest couple in the church in Denver years ago. She was six foot one and she was about four foot nine or ten. And whenever we'd go out, they'd invite us out to dinner and they would take us to the Denver Club. I mean, that, that is up on the top of the Denver Club building in Denver, Colorado back in the 50s. That was a club, exclusive club of four or five hundred members and you couldn't join until somebody died and no one else could get in. And they were lined up for years to get in that place and they'd take us up there and they had these big silver ovens that'd pop them up. And, but this couple, they would not tell anyone their age. It was a very military secret, and they guarded each other so no one would know what their ages were. And this fella, it would be so funny because he would have black coloring on his scalp all over, and sometimes his sweat would run down his neck. And he, she'd say, uh, precious lean over, and he'd lean down like this, and she'd work on every little hair to try to get his wrap, put around the bald spots and everything on his head. It was the funniest thing. You know, we laugh about those things, but... Paul the Apostle didn't even look with dread on passing away. And if the passing of Beverly has done nothing else for me, it's made me realize that I only have one reason to even stay here. And that's to serve the Lord. Whenever he says that's all, Paul said, you know, if I had my brothers, I'd be with the Lord right now, but it's necessary for me to be here because I'm supposed to minister to you. If I had my brothers, I would not be here another moment. I'd go to be with the Lord. And you know, that's where Christians need to get. To a place 
Bless God another year closer to either Jesus coming or my going to be with him. I've got to be busy about the Lord's work so I can get it all done. You can't change it. Not one person has passed and gotten away without passing away other than Elijah and Enoch. But God did that to show that he has even the power over death. These are ten unchangeables. I'm meant to get further than this tonight. I didn't, but I think they're important. The other universal non-optional principles that I brought out before, the first one was design, and that's what we just talked about. The second was authority. God has established non-optional requirements, principles, and that is submit to your parents, to church leaders, to government, and when we don't, it's resisting God, he said. And we'll have to answer to God for it. The third one was responsibility. Society today would like to tell you that people who do wrong today, it's society's fault. It's not society's fault. Every man, whatever he sows, he's going to reap. I lived in a horrible neighborhood, but I had a choice. Every day that I lived, am I going to go the way that they want me to go, or am I going to do what I know down inside is right? I went the wrong way most of the time until I found the Lord, and then I felt so badly that I had gone the wrong way. It isn't the neighborhood, because out of those, some of those slum neighborhoods come some of the finest young leaders in our nation. And what God says, whatever you and I sow, that's what we're going to reap. And if we're going to revere God's universal non-optional principles, that's one of them we have to be very careful of. Next is suffering. I know that, that there are some teachings out today that say that there will be no suffering in this world, and I'm not saying that we're supposed to go out looking for suffering. But let me just read you some verses out of Revelation 21. John says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And I will get this. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Now, he says that's what it's going to be when we get to heaven, but he's saying that there are going to be those things in this life. And when they come, we have to realize that we have a Savior that we can cry out to. We have authority. We have authority. We also have the, the sovereignty of God in situations. Through those situations, we have to recognize God's sovereignty and give glory and honor to him. The, the fifth one was ownership. We are not our own. We are stewards. Of everything that we have, we're stewards of God. Freedom. Another option that God's given us. We don't have to serve the Lord. We can do whatever we want to. We can resist. We can turn to That's why in the Old Testament, God says to Moses, stand up and say, this day choose you whom you'll serve. Those of you that are serve God, step over here. Those of you that aren't, stay over there. And then he said to those that stepped over the land, he said, I'll go over and slay every one of them. God says we have freedom. Now, I like what Bill Gothard says about that. He says, freedom is not the freedom to do what we want, but the power to do what we ought. I like that. As Christians, we have the power. Now, before I was a Christian, I couldn't do what I ought to do. I tried to quit smoking. I tried to quit drinking. I tried to quit cursing. I tried to clean up my act. I couldn't do it. But when Jesus came into my life, he gave me freedom to be able to do what I knew I ought to do. And you and I every day choose whether we're going to do it God's way or our own way. And then success. God wants us to be successful, and that's achieving the full potential God planned for you, following his way, even if it's contrary to our natural inclination. That's one of the hardest things for us to do. Do things God's way, whatever the word says, 
and not follow our natural inclination. Natural inclinations say, I'm going to set that sucker straight. I mean, after all, he did that, and he knew he was hurting me, and he's not going to get away with that. Jesus says, forgive. Even his God for Christ says, that's forgiven you. Well, he just knew what he did. doesn't make a difference what he did or said. But something inside you, that's right, that something inside of you is what you have to conquer, that old man, and submit to what the Word of God says. Natural tendency says, get all, get all you can, can't all you get, sit on the lid and poison the rest. And Jesus said, no, given it shall be given unto you, pressed down and shaken together, running over, shall men give into your bosom. The natural thing says, dread the future. And the Word of God says, we're more than conquerors to him that loved us. Number four, honor God with the first fruits of all your increase. A lot of people think that the only reason people are to return the tithe to church is to support the church. That isn't what the Word of God teaches. If that's the only reason, if you think it is for the support of the pastor, I've got news for you. God doesn't do it for that. Now, Paul does say that the laborer is worthy of his hire, and they, that, that, that labor in the ministry should be supported by those who receive the ministry. But look with me at Deuteronomy, the 14th chapter. Deuteronomy 14. You know that returning the tithes to the Lord is to teach you the fear of the Lord, to help in teaching you the fear of the Lord. And if someone does not tithe because they say, I'm not under law, but I'm under grace, it's evidence that there's an area where they have not learned to fear the Lord. Because the word of God declares this in Genesis all the way through the New Testament concerning returning to the Lord. Verse 22 of chapter 14 of Deuteronomy. Thou shalt truly tithe all the increase of thy seed that the field bringeth forth year by year. And thou shalt eat before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose to place his name there. The tithe of thy corn, of thy wine, and of thine oil, and the firstlings of thy herds, and of thy flock, that thou mayest learn to fear the Lord thy God always. Why? That thou mayest learn to fear the Lord thy God always. What's he saying? He's saying you will do it because you will, in doing so you're declaring, I know that everything I have is from God, and in returning this to the Lord, I'm making that declaration that I my life, my breath, my strength, my knowledge, everything that I have is from the Lord, and I'm returning this back, into his, back to him in acknowledgement of it. Some people say, well, brother, that's under the law. Abraham was not under the law. Abraham returned tithes. The law didn't come for another 400 years, but Abraham returned tithes. His children returned their tithes. Abraham learned that because he had a fear of the Lord. One of the principles here in the fear of the Lord is to honor God with the first fruit of all the increase. Alright, look at Genesis, the 14th chapter. He's telling you about Abraham. Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. And he said, Blessed be Abraham of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hands, and he gave him tithes of all. Again, I say, Abraham was not under the law, for some that would say that that's part of the law. It was inculcated in the law. Do you know that marriage laws were established in, in the first chapter of Genesis? But they were reinstated in the Ten Commandments. That does not mean that they were just of the law and they're no longer effective anymore. God was just saying, this is just part of everything I've been trying to teach you, and I'm going to put it in, uh, you told me to give, lay them to you, and so I've given you ten hot ones here, see what you can do with them. That's when Moses wrote the ten suggestions. The fear of the Lord is acknowledging that God is in control of our funds and that he will reward our faith when we give to him. On the other hand, when we try to withhold the tithe, the devourer is allowed to consume our resources. 
You remember in Malachi, the third chapter, verses 8 through 11. Malachi says that when we return our tithes to the Lord, he'll bless us. But if we don't, if we rob the Lord, he says, wherein have we robbed thee? He says, you've robbed me of tithes and offerings. He said, now if you'll return the tithes to me, I will, God will, open the windows of heaven and pour out such a blessing that you're not able to contain it. Now that's said in a different way in the New Testament. How is it said there? Give and it shall be given unto you, pressed down, taken together, running over to men, given to your bosom. The same measure that you give, that you measure, it shall be measured unto you again. You use an eyedropper, God uses an eyedropper. You use a skid shovel, he, you use a front loader, he uses a front loader. You use a, a ship, he'll use a ship. How does that work? According to your faith. You pray. Now again, let me emphasize something here. It is not according to your presumption. It's not according to what you don't have. It's not according to giving to a minister because a man tells you to give to his ministry that you'll get the hundredfold return. Giving is based upon obedience to God. That's why I've said time and time again, don't ever just indiscriminately give an offering. Bow your head and say, now Lord, I want to be obedient in this. Everything I have is yours. You tell me what I should return to you in this area of ministry. And that's what has disturbed me so many times when these men will set something out front and say, now, you come up, and while I'm standing here, they'll hold the Bible open. You put money in here, and as you give to this ministry, I'll guarantee you, on the authority of God's word, he'll give you a hundredfold back, liar. What if God tells you not to give to that ministry? Now you're walking in disobedience. In fact, one of the vows that the children of Israel had to make after they returned the tithes to the Lord, one of the vows they made was that they hadn't given anything to that which was dead. The only Christians today that are putting money into dead things, they had to confess that they had not put anything into anything that was there. You know, 2 Corinthians 9, 6. But I have this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he that soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. You see, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. You and I can memorize every one of these verses if that's not knowing it. How do we know the truth? That's why the word of God says it's not the here that's blessed, it's the doing that's blessed. This past week, I, I had someone I talked to on the phone, and they're in dire financial straits. Dire financial straits. And I said, Lord, what would you have me to do? Is there something I can do? You want me to just show me, Lord. I, I really want to do it. And all this week, while I've been there, I've been saying, Lord, what would you have me to do? And up to now, he's not giving me the release to do anything. I want to do something in the worst way. Lord, I really feel... But you know, again, I've told you time and time again, if God's trying to fix somebody with a fix, don't you fix that fix? Don't fix that fix. You fix that fix, God has to fix the fix, the fix, the fix, the fix, the fix, the fix. No. I keep saying that to you, but it's very, very important to understand. Just because you see somebody with a need doesn't mean automatically that you give you to say, Lord, is there something that you want me to do in this matter? And if he says no and you do it, you're disobedient. Well, I just wanted to say, no. If he says no, don't. But if he says, yes, you better do it. The good stewardship is not throwing money away, giving everything you see that comes in your way. Good stewardship is hearing what the shepherd says and doing it. What if Jesus had gone to the pool of Siloam and just said, well, everybody get up, it's all over. He said, that'd been wonderful. No, it'd been disobedient. He said, I don't do anything except the Father tell me to do it. 
I don't say anything until the father tells me to say it. The father said, Jesus, go over. You see that man down there just about four rows from the front? He's been there for 30 years now. Now, don't worry about the rest of them. I want you to step over. Everybody else can go over there and say, do you want to be well? Can you imagine? How would you have felt if here's where the man was and you laid there or there or there or there? How would you have felt? I don't know about you, but I think I'd have been grabbing for a castle. Jesus said, you want to be well? You know, after you've been there 30 years, and you begin to say, you know, it's not bad because people bring the food every day now. I don't have to work anymore. I'm, I'm making it at least, you know. You really want to be well? I mean, you want to have to start paying taxes again? You want to get up and have to work again, get calluses on your hands and say what? You want it? Yeah. Pick up your bed and walk. I hope I can emphasize this enough to you because there's so much false teaching and so many giving to that. False teaching to that. And a lot of ministries will be becoming very, very wealthy from it. And a lot of homes are being destroyed and a lot of people are being totally disillusioned. I know a man today that isn't even in church anymore in his family because he went up to big Disney World, Christian Disney World, and was told in those meetings, give a special faith offering tonight to this ministry and it'll come back to you a hundredfold. Well, that happened time and time again. He went out on a limb and gave a huge amount of money, came back and said, our business is going to really prosper now because I really gave up that. I said, did God tell you to do it? Huh? Did God tell you to give that much money? I don't know. He tells us to give to the ministry. I said, he tells us to give to the ministry, but he'll tell you specifically where to give to the ministry. He didn't want to talk about that. Today, the man is totally disillusioned. Out of the church, the church doesn't have anything more to do it. He's been burned. The Lord loves the hilarious giver. God blesses you and measures blesses, blesses you and you ask the Lord, what should I do? And if he tells you to do it, it'll come in. If he doesn't tell you to do it, all right. I know why I'm here. Do you know why you're here? I believe it'll come in. God wants to say. This is one of the areas where we need to know and understand the fear of the Lord. I am just as afraid to give wrongly as I am not to give right. I've had the Lord say to me, go over and give the best that person. I said, Lord, are you sure? Yes. Keep feeling that impression, keep feeling that impression. I'd be afraid to walk out of it. You know, I one time I told you about a lady that I ran into that was in dire straits, and, and I didn't want to talk about it because right then I had just saved up $100 and had it back in my billfold, and I really was holding on to that for something I, I really wanted to do later on. And I, you know, I got outside in the car, I knew the Lord was gnawing on me, and he said, I want you to give that to I, Oh, bless the Lord, oh my soul. And I'm making all the noise I could not to listen to that little voice. And I got home and the drop stopped in the driveway and I had to put it in reverse and go back and ask her, will you please forgive me? I wasn't obedient to God and I gave it to her two years ago. And the Lord just spoke to me and he got in the car and said, you keep asking me to help you in your need, but if you don't give when I tell you to give, then don't expect me to give when you ask me. And my God has supplied all my needs. He does supply all my needs. According to his words, he finds himself. And you know something I've noticed? He doesn't even always use Christians. Many times he'll use non-Christians to supply my needs. He's not limited at all. You know he's not limited if he can tell a guy to go out and throw a hook in the water and the first fish he gets is going to have a gold coin in his mouth. He's not limited. Throw the net over there. He's not limited to you and me. He can bypass stubborn, hard of hearing Christians and he'll go out and get it from someplace else and give it to you. But when you're walking with God in obedience to his word, the devil cannot stop it from coming because God's promised it. 
Now again, let me just say, I can't go out and say, God, I demand, I demand in the name of Jesus that you give me a new torch. Some groups today almost say, you know, they shall know them by their Cadillac. Well, all you have to do is read Hebrews 11. You find out that that isn't necessarily so for what happened to many saints who died in faith. Oh, if they'd have more faith, they'd have just to bust their way out of it, liar. They were obedient to God's word. They did what God told them to do and they paid a price. Is there a place for confession? Absolutely. But remember, he's not our shield and butler. He's our shield and buckler. He doesn't have to do what we tell him to do. We do what he tells us to do. In accordance with his word, we stand on his word and believe God for the end. And I say that because you know there have been times in the past when my sweetheart went to be with the Lord and when others have passed away. Inferences were almost made that had we written out more verses, had we made more confessions, had we caused them to memorize more verses, they never would have needed to have died. We began to realize that there's something very, very wrong with that teaching. But I don't know how many verses Lazarus has taught. How many things he had to confess. Or the widow's son that was on the... It didn't even say that the widow herself was confessing promises and demanding God to raise her son. She was going to bury him. Jesus stepped out and forgave him. As we say, Lord, we're going to be obedient. You tell us to anoint with oil and pray. Bless God. We're concerned with what's happening. We better get wise to what's happening. And if we stand true, I believe we're going to see a revolutionary turnaround here in the days ahead. Stand for the word of God. Don't be deceived by these new false doctrines that are coming in. Get yourself informed. Study these books. And if you have questions, maybe some years tonight we'll be able to answer, have a question and answer period and answer some of these questions for you. I'm not really not concerned too much about this body because our body of believers are good about spiritual prayer. Every one of them, that I am the most of all of them, are very faithful in their tithes. I think that there's an area that they need to even pray about more so, and that is tithes and offerings, where they begin to believe God for 15, 20, 25, 30 percent. Given until it hurts right now, that's right. But if you can pray and ask God to give you the faith for it, you'll be able to give until it quits hurting and begin to believe, see God do greater things for you. Now, I'm not telling you to do something that God hasn't shown us. My wife and I, and those that are in charge of the finances around here, know that we do not believe the tithe. I, I return the tithe. That's, I haven't given God a thing. I'm just returning what's His. Above and beyond that, we begin by faith to step out. And each week I say, Lord, give me, give me the faith to believe it's a little bit better here. You know, we've never solved yet. God has always provided our needs. On the fear of the Lord, last one we talked about last week. You remember what we talked about? Honor God with the first fruit of all your increase. Remember, we talked about giving to the Lord's work. That's one of the aspects of evidence of the fear of the Lord. We read to you from Deuteronomy, the 14th chapter, Thou shalt truly tithe all the increase of thy seed that the field bringeth forth that thou mayest learn to fear the Lord thy God always. It is a declaration of the Lordship of Christ in our lives when we return to him that which is his. And then we begin to determine how much we're going to exercise faith in returning to the Lord offerings above and beyond the tithe. Some people say, well, I don't believe the tithes from the New Testament. Well, then we'll take New Testament teaching, and that is that the widow gave everything she had. And you remember the... Zacchaeus, who was up in the tree, when he got saved, when Jesus got him down out of the tree, he said, I, I, I'm going to give half of all that I have to the poor. So if you don't like tithe, you need to give all that you have or half to the Lord. 
But this is a declaration of the fear of the Lord in our lives. Now, relating to the consequences of sin to the holiness of God. The consequences of sin to the holiness of God. How do we relate these? Now, what I'm doing, covering this Bill Gothard information that he gave us, we know that the chastening of God can be a very painful thing. Now, I've had chastening from the Lord in my lifetime. I've had to ask God for forgiveness because I've been disobedient or had not listened to him when he was trying to tell me and show me something, and I've had to be chastened. And, and I believe that at times circumstances come as the fruit of our own mistakes and the fruit of our own error. There's, because the way of the transgressor is hard. There's always a price to pay. If you sow wild oats, you reap wild oats. It's even so as a nation. You want to see what kind of pain is involved in consequences of sin, you have to read Psalm 51. King David, who had committed adultery with another man's wife and then had the man sent to the front lines to be killed to try to hide his sin so that the husband would not find out about it. Later on, the prophet put his finger on his nose and said, Thou art the man. Now here was a man who had hidden it in his own heart, didn't want anyone to know. Really, he had the right to send that man to the front if he wanted to, but God didn't look at what he did. He looked at the intent of his heart. He wanted to kill that man. He had murder in his heart. And in Psalm 51, if you ever want to read a psalm of repentance, that's a good psalm to read. David realized that because of that sin, later on, he had all kinds of problems in his family. His, his one son, brother, half-brother killed another half-brother, and another half-brother raped another half-sister in the family. And later on, his own son Absalom drove him out of the palace, and he, when he came back, David's men went out and slew his son Absalom. A lot of heartache, a lot of sorrow, a lot of real pressure from the consequences of sin, personally. Paul the Apostle even warned us as believers in this same area. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to, to 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter, and the last verse. Paul is speaking there, actually, and they're starting with the 24th verse about the citizens of heaven who are running a race. If you and I are Christians, the Scripture says each one of us have our own race to run. All right. It says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize, so run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is tempered in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep my body under and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Well, let me tell you something. Some of my Calvinistic brethren really squirm on this when they twist and try to tell you that that means that a pot has received a crack in it and therefore can't be used for its original purpose, but it can still be used for another purpose. Well, I want you to know that that same word, a dokamos in the Greek, is used in other places as the word reprobate. A reprobate is one who has turned away from and denied the faith. Paul says, if I don't keep my body under, if I do not get serious about this race that I'm in, if I, after preaching to others, don't live it and walk it, I can become a reprobate. I can be cast away. Right? So let me just show you a few of the other verses. Look at Romans, the first chapter. Romans, the first chapter. I'm using the same word now in the Greek, Dokmos. Romans, the first chapter. I believe it's verse 28 talking about those that turned over to unnatural sins, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness and on and on and on and on. It, he said that's, that's the same word, a doikomos, lest I become a castaway. And there it's used as a word 
reprobate. Then in 2 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, I think it's interesting for us to follow that word through and see other applications of that same word in the word of God. 2 Corinthians 13, verses 5 through 7. Paul is saying to the church of Corinth, examine yourselves or test or evaluate yourself, adokamos, same word, whether you be in the faith, prove your own selves, know not your own selves, now that how that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates, there's that word again, reprobates. But I trust that you shall know that we are not reprobates. Now I pray to God that you that you do no evil, not that you should that we should appear approved, but that you should do that which is honest, though we be as reprobates. Again, he says we are not those that have turned away from the faith. The same word, adokamos. And then in Second uh, uh, Timothy, the third chapter, Second Timothy chapter three, verse eight. Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses. So do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. Those that have turned away from the faith. In Titus 1.16, the next page over in my Bible, 1.16, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. It's a powerful word. Hebrews 6.8. One more. Beginning with verse 7, For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, bringeth forth herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected. That word rejected there is a dokamos. And is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be what? Hebrews the 6th chapter and the 8th verse. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be what? Burned. Look back at concerning that burning to John the 15th chapter. John chapter 15, verses 5 and 6, I believe it is. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Now, I wanted to follow that through to show you the consequences of sin in re as it relates to the holiness of God. There are many people who tell you today that once you get saved, there is absolutely nothing you can do to get out of it. But now Paul the Apostle here says, you know, after having preached this gospel, I fear because I allow, willfully allow sin to continue in my life, that I become a castaway, that I become a dokamos, that I become reprobate, that I become that which is to be burned. Now, all the way through the Old Testament, God would always say, this is what I want you to do. In case you don't want to do it, here's a little impetus, you know, something to encourage you to do it. He'd say, now, if you'll obey me, the blessings will be yours in the city and in the country. You'll be the head and not the tail, above and not beneath. And not. But if you don't, then there's going to be this curse, 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 curse right down the line. And they look and say, well, you know, I think I'd rather obey over here because I don't want those curses. But they didn't obey and they still got the curses, you see. But all the way through, God says, I'm not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But if Christians absolutely refuse to obey God and absolutely refuse to get rid of unconfessed sin in their lives, there is a price to be paid. It's true of the individual. It's true of a nation. It's true of a church. It happened to the nation of Israel because one man had sin in his life. They were defeated until they repented of that sin. Ecclesiastes, the 12th chapter. Let me just read to you out of here the 13th and 14th verses. 
says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. God shall bring every one of these things into open judgment. Every secret thing. What happens when a nation forgets God? Well, the Bible's full of things that could happen. Warnings and examples of what happens to nations that forget God. But I want to just bear on three things that Bill brought out here. First of all, it will be the victim of its own wickedness. What's the principle? What you sow, you reap. The victim of its own wickedness. Because there's no fear of God, he said, the people decide what is right and wrong. Every man does that which is right in his own eyes, and the wickedness of immorality abounds. That's why I've told you that democracy is not the standard that God really wants to set. You see, because democracy simply means this. We've had a blessed experience as living in the United States in what we call a democratic society. It really has not been democratic. It's been more of a republic, but they're trying to make it into a democratic society more and more. Democratic means the majority rules. And that's fine as long as you've got godly people ruling. But when the ungodly get into the majority, then you're in real trouble in a democratic society. And if you don't think so, you get, just give it about one more generation here because the, what has happened already from the last generation to this generation is going to be multiplied many times over unless God sends a Holy Ghost revival. We're going to be ruling the day that we ever said democracy is okay. And you'll remember as long as Christians were in the, in the majority, the non-Christians, the ungodly were saying, look, you, you at least give us a voice. At least give us some say-so in this matter. I mean, be a little bit easy on us. And now that they're getting in control, they say, we want you just to shut up and stay out of the way. You Christians shouldn't be talking about politics anyway. You stay in your churches. If, if we find out you say anything about politics, we'll come and take your tax-free status away from you. We want to keep you quiet. We don't want you saying things. Why? Because if the godly say something, they're like salt. They try to stop the putrefaction. But the day is going to come unless God sends a Holy Ghost revival. I believe with all my heart. Billy Graham has said it. Jimmy Swaggart said it. Jesus is going to have to come soon. But they still believe there's going to be a mighty judgment on this nation. Because the light that we've turned away from. And we are going to be sowing and being the victim of our own wickedness. God's moral standards, however, do not change and he will not be mocked. For he that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, and he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life, and peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. With the onslaught right now here in the United States of a host of venereal diseases, we're beginning to see just a little bit more of how we're reaping what we've sown. It's a horrible thing when our sailors go out in some of these ships and they'll land like over in the Philippines or they'll land in Singapore, and when the men get back on board, more, up to half or more of them end up with venereal diseases and they're almost quarantined on those ships. It's a horrible thing. Now they're saying that over in the Philippines that it's the Americans that are taking AIDS over there and now they, the prostitutes are giving these AIDS back to our own American boys. And when they find out they've got AIDS, they say, we want you to stop prostituting, but they don't. They go underground and they just go all the harder trying to find these sailor boys to try to make a living until they die. Most of these prostitutes are trying to, to support their children. And so what we have sown over there now is coming back on us all the more with our young men. Jeremiah 2.19 is beginning to come to pass in the United States. Jeremiah 2.19 says, Thine own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backslidings shall reprove thee. Know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and bitter that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God, and that my fear is not in thee, saith the Lord God of hosts. 
I've never seen a day such as this day where there seems to be less and less fear of God. I mean, even out in the world. I mean, before, when I was a new Christian, I would go out and, and somebody find out I was a Christian, they would quit swearing, they would try to be nice, you know, that at least be polite. But anymore, they're absolutely become, they've become blatant. There's no fear of God anymore. The reason there used to be a fear of God is because most families had some Christians involved in the family. They had some Bible background and training. But our roots have been torn up. We've been sent from one end of the nation to the other and overseas and back, and our family's been torn up and marriage, divorce, remarriage, divorce, remarriage. And so there's no root system there whatsoever. And now out of guilt and despair, people have become just rabid in their hatred for God and the things of God. We're just beginning to reap that. The first thing is it'll be the victim of its own wickedness. And the second thing is its legal system will become unjust. Does that sound familiar? It still staggers me when I realize that today a young girl can go into a nurse's aid help program in the schools, some of the schools in the United States, and they will not pierce her ears for earrings. She has to get her parents' permission, but she can get an abortion without her parents' permission. Are you talk about being just or unjust? Somebody can go out here and starve some horses and go to prison in the state of Florida for five years for starving some horses or letting some dogs die. But a city commissioner can shoot his wife in the chest five times and only be in, in jail for a few months. Where's their justice? Its legal system will become unjust. When men's hearts are set on doing evil, they'll reinterpret existing laws and create new laws to justify greed and wickedness. How many of you know that if you and I tried to open a church where it wasn't zoned for a church. They had shut us down in a minute. But a porno shop down here in Longwood was able to open up, despite the fact they did not give them a permit to do so, and they cannot shut that thing down. It's still operating. And the sheriff just kind of throws his hands up and says, well, there's not much we can do about it. City police, well, there's not much we can do about it. And then some of the leaders in the community told our Christian brethren, don't do anything about it because we're going to get them, we're going to get them, we're going to get them. And now they found out that they're not going to get them. We weren't supposed to do anything about it. Unjust laws. We're reaping exactly what we've sown as a nation. And we're just beginning to see the beginning of it. Jeremiah 5. Again, Jeremiah was the one that was told to have a forehead like flint. And remember I talked about that this last Sunday? Here's what he said to his people. But this people hath a revolting and rebellious heart. Jeremiah 5, 23 and 24. And then verse 28. Neither say they in their heart, let us now fear the Lord. Yet they prosper, and the right of the needy do they not judge. Let me read that again. But this people hath a revolting and a rebellious heart. Neither say they in their heart, let us now fear the Lord. Yet they prosper, and the right of the needy they do, not, do they not judge. Oh, everything's going great. I mean, the stock market's going up. We're getting more money put into savings. Everything seems to be going fine. And they say, look, we're going to get all we can and can all we get. And uh, if the poor don't make it, it's just time. Jeremiah said that that's a, a revolting and a rebellious heart. Thirdly, its wealth will be controlled by other nations. Does that sound familiar? When our nation trusted in God, read his word in our public schools, and taught his moral standards in our classrooms, we were the richest nation in the world. None could come close to us. We're now the greatest debtor nation in the world. Scripture is clear that the borrower is servant to the lender. We're not only debtors, but citizens of other nations now own and control significant portions of our land, the resources and companies. The Arabs, the Japanese, 
Europeans are coming over and literally buying up billions and billions of dollars worth of our companies, our real estate, buying into our stock market. Right now, we're told that if they were to jerk their money out of our economy, we would be destroyed. Our nation, would, our whole economy would totally collapse. They have come to that point where they own enough and can control enough that they could just destroy us overnight if they wanted to. And you go downtown in most of your big cities, and what do you see? General Motors? No. You see Seiko, Mitsubishi, Volkswagen, all these other companies, all these other countries coming in and own, uh, owning property here where we have become the world's largest debtor nation. Why do you think that's happened? God's word says that happens when a nation forgets God. And when they fail to have the fear of the Lord in their heart. Look at Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28, beginning with verse 43. And I told you about the blessings that he talked about. And here's one of the curses that he said was going to happen to those that, when they forgot God. It says, The stranger that is within thee shall get up above thee very high, the stranger that is within thee, and thou shalt come down, what? Very low. He shall lend to thee, and thou shalt not lend to him. He shall be the head, and thou shalt be the tail. You see it happening? Exactly what God's word says is going to happen to Israel if they forgot God and failed to have the fear of the Lord in their heart. It's happening to us as an individual. We're reaping and becoming a victim of our own wickedness. Our legal system has become unjust, and our wealth is going to be controlled by other nations. What's the cure for a nation that does not fear God? There's only one. God's only remedy for a nation that turns from him is the active presence of righteous and God-fearing people. God would have saved Sodom and Gomorrah if he could have found ten righteous people. Just ten. God would have done it in Sodom and Gomorrah if they had only listened. It's never been so vital for God's people to totally dedicate themselves to him and become living testimonies of the principles of his word like today. It's necessary to them. Isaiah 59, 19. When the enemy shall come in, like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord raise up a standard against the enemy. And God's people will take a stand in the fear of the Lord and walk uprightly and holy before Him, loving and encouraging each other and strengthening each other in the things of the Spirit. There's nothing else that can resist the powers of darkness like that. That's why the enemy doesn't want the church to get excited. One of the primary functions of the local church is to teach Christians the community, and the nation, the fear of the Lord. When people see someone who has the fear of the Lord in their heart, it makes them stop and think. Many of them will not change. At least they've been warned. But as we speak out as Christians, there's any righteous or unrighteous things that are happening in our government that we can have an influence. Otherwise, we're not salt. We've lost our savor. We're not having a purifying effect on the society at all. If Satan can hinder the church in carrying out this vital role, he's accomplished a major victory. Of course, that's why pastors today are under special attack. When I was at that pastor's conference, I was just amazed to listen to the different pastors. And it's just like there's an all-out attack from Satan against pastors and ministers today. Churches filled with people who are chewing the pastors apart, tearing their families apart, eating them up, spitting them out, doing everything they can to discourage them. There are thousands of pastors that are leaving the ministry every year. Thousands of there are thousands and thousands of churches that are seeking pastors today. You know they're actually advertising in secular magazines. We need a preacher in our church. Will you come and preach? 
I know what's happened. There's nothing more merciless in the world than for Christians to tear pastors apart or tear their families apart. My wife and I were in a church one time where for six months, every time we came home from church, Beverly would cry. She knew there were things being said. People would not come to them, would not come to her, would not come to me. They would say things that would hurt, say things that would divide. As I look back now, they've reaped what they've seen. And it's a terrible thing. I really feel badly for them. But I'll tell you, pastors today are under special attack. I really believe that. There are just literally thousands of pastors today that, that are in a quandary trying to figure out what to do. And I'll tell you, I understand the feelings that they have sometimes because there was a time when I told the Lord, Lord, as far as I said, you can really take this ministry back. I really don't want it. It took a long time for the healing to come back. A long time for me before, before I could realize that the hurt that Beverly had to go through in that situation, you were just one of many, many, many. I literally wept when I've heard what some churches have said and done about to their pastors in the past. In every situation, they don't realize that Satan uses that. First of all, to destroy a servant of Christ. Secondly, to destroy a church. Thirdly, to destroy a witness in a community. And you know, if we have the fear of the Lord in our heart, that doesn't happen. You can't do that. Last year, in one denomination alone, 1,400 pastors left the ministry, most of them because of discouragement. No wonder scriptures exhorts us to pray for our spiritual authorities and to encourage them in every way we can. And asking pastors what their people could do that would give them the greatest encouragement to receive the following answer. Now, I didn't tell him to write this. This is just part of what he said, and I'll read them quickly to you. Pastors that he asked the questions, the most answers, where I'd be encouraged if I knew that I was being prayed for consistently. All the apostles kept saying, pray for that I might have an open door. Ephesians, the sixth chapter, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, that utterance may be given unto me, and that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Secondly, he said, I'd appreciate help with routine tasks so that I can maintain my God-given priorities. When a pastor is expected to do everything, he has little time for primary ministry to which God has called him. It was for this reason that godly assistants were chosen in the early church. Then the apostles could give themselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Thirdly, I'm encouraged when people come to the church expecting to receive a message from the Lord. Rather than evaluating or critiquing the points of the sermon, a Christian who is hungering and thirsting after God's Word will be alert for insights and directions through songs, prayers, messages, the reading of the Word, the Scripture, or which God brings to their minds during the service. Nothing encourages a pastor more than reports of those who were hearers and doers of the message which God used him to bring. Fourthly, he said, I'm strengthened by members who work for harmony within the church. Harmony begins by each member being in a right relationship with the Lord. It's strengthened by a friendly smile and a word of encouragement whenever Christians meet together. It is guarded and protected when members refuse to spread gossip. And if broken, it is restored when Christians ask forgiveness when they've been wrong. Ephesians 4, verses 2 and 3. It says, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Next one said, I am grateful when members offer special assistance prior to a major church event. When something special comes up, of course, we have that in our body all the time. I am thankful for the members who honor the Lord in their finances and give in obedience to their direction. We've already talked about the giving aspect of it. 
I'm challenged by members who have an effective witness in the community and who are leading others to Christ. There, to me, is the thing that I've been asking God to give us. That's one sign of a healthy sheep, is when a sheep bears sheep. When we begin to have an outreach and ministry to others around, scripture says, and the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. But if we're not out there seeing which ones he would have us make contact with, it's hard to win them to the Lord. Based on these ideas, can you say that you are participating in the action described in Ephesians 4.16? From whom the whole body, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. He closes it by saying, which one of these could we do today to help encourage the pastor? I appreciate the teaching that Brother Bill Gotham gave on this in the fear of the Lord. And I've asked God to give me a new fear of Him. A new awareness that I don't want to be laid aside as a dokumos, as a reprobate. One who's set aside because He can't be used anymore. He's failing to fear the Lord as He ought. I want to ask the Lord to somehow make me more free. I want to ask Him, do we really fear the Lord? Do we really fear the Lord? Well, when He says in His word that love one another, encourage one another, build up one another, we'll be a witness to Him. Have a right set, a righteous standard in the community. And we say, Lord, that's exactly what I'm going to do. That's exactly what I'm going to try to do. You know, the fear of the Lord in my heart, we can't do anything else. That's not. 